Hey everyone, good morning. Um, my name is Pastor John. Um, it's a privilege for me to share God's Word with you today. Um, I just wanted to piggyback on uh, what you saw in the video and what even Pastor Sam shared uh, with our first uh, service next week where we're going to gather together again. And it'd be so nice to see uh, all of your faces. And uh, my only one encouragement to you would be if you are able, uh, if you're not in a place where you uh, in love, have to sub serve others by being careful, or um, you're okay, and um, you're able to come out and physically just gather and worship with God's people, um, I would really encourage you to do so. Um, I say that because knowing my own heart and my sinful, um, just my laziness, um, that I w have gotten quite used to uh, worshiping on my couch and in uh, just uh, more comfortable clothes. And um, But there is... Uh, something special about gathering together and worshiping with God's people. So if you are able, um, yeah, I would love to see your faces there uh, next week um, in our in-life or in-person service. Um, as I mentioned, uh, my name is uh, Pastor John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege uh, always to share God's word uh, with his people. Uh, but it's, it's an absolute joy for me this weekend because uh, this weekend uh, is a very special weekend for me. Um, because I get to handle God's Word uh, today, and it's sandwiched uh, in between uh, the birthdays of uh, two of the most important people in my life. Uh, yesterday was my wife's birthday, Tina's birthday, so happy birthday, dear. And uh, tomorrow is my daughter's birthday. And so I kind of wanted to do a quick shout-out because I just never know when I'll get this opportunity again. So happy birthday, Maya. Appa loves you. Um, yeah. Uh, with that said, we're going to jump right into God's Word today. Uh, we've been going through the book of Habakkuk. And to fully understand where we are today in our text, I think it'll be beneficial for us to take a couple steps back and see where we are in our conversation uh, between God and Habakkuk. If you guys remember, in chapter 1, Habakkuk is looking out into his world. He's looking out into his community. He's looking out into his neighborhood, if you will. And he's seeing evil after evil after evil. There's violence everywhere. Immoral behavior is rampant. Even among those who profess God to be their Lord with their very own lips, there is evil behavior. There's destruction everywhere. The world is falling apart. Justice is being thwarted and perverted. The wicked are moving forward in every aspect of life. Success seems to follow them with every step they take. And in desperation, Habakkuk cries out, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Are you there? Can you hear me? How long will this go on for? You say that you are a just God. You say that you love us. You say that you want the best for us. How can you just sit there and do nothing? How can you watch idly and let this suffering continue? And to Habakkuk's first complaint, to his first plea, the Lord responds. And we saw his response last week. We saw that God answers Habakkuk, Oh, that's what you're worried about. You just wait. Buckle up. You're in for a show. Just wait and be astounded, he says in verse 5, chapter 1. Because I am about to do a work that you would not believe if I told you that I was going to do it. And so up to this point in the conversation, if you put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes, everything sounds just like 
the way that Habakkuk expects it to go. He is complaining. He has all these questions. He is in pain. He's in distress. He's looking out into a world filled with suffering, and he cries out, God, what are you going to do about this? And he hears finally an answer. And so in Habakkuk's heart, you are expecting him to say, yes, finally. God has heard my plea. He's about to do something. And he is excited. But God throws a curveball. And God says to Habakkuk, this is my plan. This is what I am about to do. I am going to raise the Chaldeans, the terrible Babylonians, that impetuous and savage empire that just ruthlessly wrecks everything in their way. And I will bring more violence. I will bring more destruction. I will bring more suffering here. This is what I have planned. And you can just imagine Habakkuk's response, can't you? He is in distress, and he is expecting a certain kind of answer. And what he hears from God is not what he expected. And he says, "What? excuse me? What is it that you're going to do? You're going to do what? You're going to raise up those guys? Those Babylonians? You're going to raise them up? And the those that he is referring to in verse 15, Habakkuk gives us just a glimpse of how horrible they actually were. In verse 15, it reads, he brings all of them up with the hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices, and he is glad. The reference to bringing them all out with the hook, scholars believe it is a reference to the Babylonian practice of hooking all their captives and prisoners of war with a hook through the nose. And what they would do is they would hook all their prisoners with a hook through their nose and line them up one by one, and they would parade them through the streets as a parade to show just how strong they were. And so Habakkuk is even more perplexed. He's confused, and he's saying, you're a good God, right? That's who you say you are. You're a God that hates evil, a God that proclaims love for his people, a God that wants the best for his people. You ignore all the suffering. You ignored all my pleas. And when you do finally answer, this is what you're going to say? Are you going to do this? And to be honest, there is no difficulty for me in feeling the frustration, in feeling the doubt, in feeling the confusion, in feeling the pain that Habakkuk is feeling here. And to be honest, there should be no difficulty for you either to find yourself in Habakkuk's shoes. Because this year has been a year where we have all found ourselves asking questions like these. Where are you, God? What in the world are you doing? Are you going to save me from this? Are you there? Are you listening? Are you with me or have you left me? And for so many of us, our cries, our questions, our pleas are met with the silence that is deafening. There has seemingly been no answer. There is no relief. Day in and day out, we approach God with the same question, and day in and day out, the results are the same. Nothing. And we might not be ready to say it outwardly. We might not be able to say it with our our words outrightly, but our hearts are revealed to us and to others by our actions. We have given up. We're done praying. We're done asking. 
our hearts figure, what's the point? So we have checked out. But what we see here in today's passage, specifically in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, is a picture of Habakkuk intentionally deciding to partake in a discipline that the Bible calls waiting on the Lord. Habakkuk decides to wait. He makes the decision to wait despite his confusion, despite his pain, despite the lack of a response from God, despite his suffering, Habakkuk makes the decision to wait upon the Lord. And my hope and prayer today for you and I is that we would find the strength and encouragement in the example of Habakkuk as he waits upon the Lord. That we would find strength in that. And that ultimately we would behold the mercy, grace, and love that we see in the Lord's response, not just to Habakkuk, but to us. So first things first, two things that we see, two things that we can take away on how Habakkuk decides to wait upon the Lord. The first thing that we see is that Habakkuk decides to wait on the Lord, but he decides to wait upon the Lord with patience. In chapter 2, verse 1, that's what we see. We see Habakkuk taking a posture of patience as he decides to wait upon God. He is going to wait, and he's going to wait patiently until he gets a response, until he gets an answer from God. And in verse 3 of chapter 2, actually, we get to see that God actually tells Habakkuk, I will answer you, Habakkuk, but it's going to take time. I will answer, but you need to wait for it. It will come. Surely it will come, but you need to wait. And the word wait in the original language is fascinating. It carries the tone of woodworking. Specifically, the practice in which an artist, he would try to live and leave an imprint upon a piece of wood and he would just jam something into the piece of wood and just hold it there and leave it there long enough until he could take the thing out and it would leave an imprint or a sketch onto the piece of wood. And God is telling Habakkuk almost the same thing. He says, wait, wait in that position. Make yourself comfortable there. Entrench yourself there and wait for it. Wait on me in your trouble. Wait on me in your difficult questions. Wait on me in your difficulty. Wait on me in your doubt and in your anxiety. Make the decision, the intentional decision to wait on me. And wait on me with patience. And maybe you hear that and you're like me and you're like, what? So I'm telling you that I'm having a hard time that I'm struggling with doubt, that I have anxious thoughts just racing through my mind. I'm suffering here. I can't help it. And that's what you're going to tell me? To just be patient? But I don't have patience. I'm not a patient person. I wish I had patience just in normal day life. But in the presence of difficulty, let me tell you what I do have. I don't have patience. I have anger. I have frustration. I have hopelessness. I have despair. And I think you and I, what we see in those situations, we often see patience as something that we either have or we don't have, as if something that we can't choose to practice. But the Bible says something different. In fact, the Bible does seem to say, it seems to make the case that patience grows, that patience is developed, and it comes through deliberate actions. It comes through an intentional posture of our hearts. 
or more specifically, patience is grown and developed when you and I actively, with our hearts, choose humility. And the more you and I can choose humility, the more patient that you and I will become. Let me explain this a little more clearer, clearer here. And let me be a little more specific. If you can take a look at James chapter 4, verse 13 through 15 with me, it reads, it reads this. James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You don't know is what James is saying here. He says, you have your plans. You have your idea of the way things ought to be and the way things are to work. And yet, you don't know. You don't know anything. You say, this will happen at this time. I'm going to do this at this time. By next month, I'm going to have this done. But you don't know. Instead, what James ought, says we ought to say is, well, if that's what God wills. And I shared this passage, and maybe you're thinking, where's the humility in that? How's patience involved in that? And here's what James is saying. He, what he's saying is, when things go wrong, when you and I find ourselves in situations where we think the world is falling apart, where we are suffering, where we find ourselves asking those questions. Where were you on that one, God? Are you here with me? I thought you loved me. How long is this going to continue? When you and I start to feel the anger because things aren't changing, when you and I start to feel the frustration, start to feel the hopelessness, when you and I start to stay up at night because we are worrying, because we are having questions of doubt, we are becoming anxious, we view these emotions as ones that just materialize out of thin air, as feelings that cannot help but to be felt. But here's what James tells us. He says, those worries, those questions, those doubts, they're not coming out of nowhere. They're coming out of your heart. They're coming out of a heart that believes and assumes that you are in control. They're coming out of a heart that believes that it knows everything. A heart that believes that knows that it, that a heart that believes that knows what is best. Our hearts has bought into the lie that we know best, that we know better than God. And when things don't go according to plan, and we start to feel this frustration. When we look out and we have these questions, of, God, what, you, you're, you're going to let this happen. What we are assuming is that we know best. That we know the way that things ought to be. Man, if 2020 isn't exposing this about your own heart right now, because every single day, over and over, in every aspect of my life, 2020 has been surgically operating on my heart and showing me constantly, look, this is what you truly believe. You think that you're in control. But look around you. You're not. You're not in control. At the beginning of 2020, in January, we all had made plans about how this year would look. We thought that by this point we would have this. We thought we would, we all knew what was going to happen this year. And yet none of us planned. I didn't plan 
that this year I would have to explain to Maya that when we go visit friends, that she cannot go inside their house. I didn't plan to have to explain to her why she can only wave high from a distance or from the car. I didn't plan that. I didn't know that I had to think of an explanation for that. For some of our students, you didn't plan to not attend your prom. For our graduating students, you didn't plan to not be able to attend your graduation, to celebrate that. Some of us didn't plan to lose our jobs. We didn't see that coming. Some of us could have never imagined that we would have had to say goodbye to the people that we hold so closely to us so suddenly without any kind of processing. All these things that show us, for some of us, for the first time, and for others, it reminds us yet again, we are not in control. But you can only see that with a heart of humility. It takes a humble heart for you to be able to accept that you do not see all ends of the road. It takes humility to let go of the lie that you are not in control and therefore know what is best for your own life. And when you can accept that fact, that you're not in control, that we don't know what is best for, best for our lives, we can actively choose not to worry. We can actively choose not to be anxious. And we can choose to be patient. We can choose to wait upon the Lord the Lord who is in control and does know best. How can we wait upon the Lord with patience even in the most difficult, most trying, most confusing of times? When we can, with a heart of humility, choose to be patient and acknowledge that we don't know it all, but we are waiting in the presence of a Lord who does know it all. The second thing that we can see in Habakkuk's waiting on the Lord is this, is that he waits on the Lord with perspective. The first thing was that he waits upon the Lord with patience. The second thing that we can learn from the example of Habakkuk here is that he waits upon the Lord with perspective. Take a look at what Habakkuk says in the first half of verse 1, chapter 2. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. We see here in the first verse a very clear picture of Habakkuk, where he goes upon, where he takes it upon himself to go upon a tower and station himself there to wait. Now the question for us is, why a tower? Why would Habakkuk go up onto a tower? What's the purpose of the tower? You know, towers back in those times were built in cities so that you could see, so that one could see with more perspective. From the top of the tower, you could see a fuller picture. You could see what was coming from miles and miles ahead. You could see what was coming from your left or your right. You could see what was coming from behind you. Whether it was bad weather, whether it was enemies or allies that were coming to your aid, you could see from on top of a tower what you could not see from the ground. Now that's important for you. That's important for me because if you're like me, and you're going through seasons of difficulty, where you're going through seasons of doubt, where you're going through seasons of hardships, you start to get frustrated and scared, and you tend to have tunnel vision. You can only focus on what's solely happening in front of you. You can only focus on the problem right in front of you, and your mind starts to race with thoughts of what am I going to do? What's going to happen? 
How am I going to take care of this? Your mind starts to race with anxious thought that you have no escape from. It becomes difficult to see anything else outside of yourself. It becomes impossible for you to see anything beyond your own trouble. But what we see in Habakkuk as he waits upon the Lord is this. He goes into the tower and he waits upon the Lord there spiritually. And what is he doing here? What is he doing here? Why does he station himself up there? He does it because he is making the choice to look upon his present circumstances with a new perspective. He's choosing to look at his present suffering. He's choosing to look at his present problems, his pain, with the perspective of what God has said that he would do. He's looking at his, his present situation and the perspective of what God has promised his sons and daughters. Okay, that's great. Go upon the tower, look upon your situation from the perspective of God. How does that, what does that look like for us, John? Well, take a look at Romans 8.18 with me. I think maybe a, one of the clearest pictures of what that looks like for you and I. Paul writes in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glories that is to be revealed to us. The word consider here in the original language is logizomai. It means to add up. It means to do the logic. It means to calculate, to work out in detail. Paul says, I have done the math. I have seen all the sufferings of my current situations, all the pain that I am going through at this current time, and I have put it into perspective. I have done the math, and I have decided. I have seen that it is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is waiting for me, that will be revealed to me in the big picture. Paul is stepping into the tower. He is looking at his current situation from the perspective of the tower, from the perspective of what God has promised his children. You know, Paul suffered a lot. Probably more than you and I would ever suffer. Historians believe that Paul was suffering, uh, was, was suffering from an eye issue so severe that he, he didn't know if he could continue on doing the work of the ministry. Paul was beaten numerous times. And I'm not just talking about you know, getting hit on the face. He was he was whipped, whipped so much that his flesh was being torn off. He was put in jail numerous times. And yet all of these things, he says, I go into the tower and I put it into perspective. All these excruciating, all these horrible, all these painful, all these thoughts, all these questions that I have, all these things that I would not wish upon anyone else when I go into the tower and station myself there and I wait upon the Lord and I look at it in light of what God has done and what He has promised that He will do, all these things look like nothing to me. Logizomai, I've done the math. It checks out. Paul is waiting upon the Lord with perspective. He is choosing to wait on God, meditating, focusing on the promises that God has for his children until it invades every fiber of his mind, soul, and heart, and he can look upon his present circumstances with perspective. My question for you and I is this. Do you and I know how to do that? 
Do we practice that? You know, so many times I think we, we, we think of waiting as a passive thing. We say, okay, I'll wait on the Lord. I'll sit here and I'll just wait for it all to pass. I'll let all these horrible things happen to me and I'll just, uh, just I'm just going to grunt it until it just passes me. But what we see here is that waiting on the Lord is an active thing. It's thinking. It's doing the math. It's going into the tower. It's calculating. It's working out in detail. It's putting into perspective everything that we have going on here. All the things that we are just itching to get out of. And we look at it in light of what God has promised you and I. That He works all things. Even the most painful, difficulty, confusing, what are you doing, God, things together for the good of you and I, His sons and daughters. Would that make the pain go away? No. Would that make the suffering any easier? No. But it'll help you to wait on God. Because even in the most difficult and most confusing and sorrowful of situations, you and I can just know that there is a glory that is coming, that is revealed in us, that He has promised us. And so we wait upon the Lord with perspective. So maybe you're thinking, okay, I'm going to do it. I was close to giving up. I, 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 I did find myself getting checked out. My heart was, I had given up. I thought you couldn't hear me. So I'll try. I'll try to wait upon the Lord with patience and perspective. But still, John, the question remains. Even if I wait upon God with patience, even if I wait upon Him with perspective, how do I know that He will answer? How do I know that He hears my cries for help? How will I know that He won't hang me out to dry? How do I know that He won't just abandon me? How can I trust Him? Well, let's take a look at God's response to Habakkuk briefly in chapter 2, verse 2. We see in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, he says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. In other words, God says to Habakkuk, In other words, I understand your question, and I will answer you. I will provide a vision. In some translations it says, I will provide a revelation. And it continues with verse 3. It says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He says, be patient. That in the appointed time, Habakkuk, it will be revealed. Did Habakkuk get to see what God had said that he would do? You know, for you and I, we have the benefit of something that Habakkuk had never got to see. What God says here in, in verse 3, what he labels as the appointed time. You know, what's amazing to me is, you know the very first words that Jesus spoke? In the Gospel of Mark, the very first words that Jesus spoke when he comes onto the, onto the scene is this. It says, the time has come. The time has come. 
That's what Jesus says, the very first words that he speaks as he goes into his ministry. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, at just the right time. In Galatians 4, he writes again, in the fullness of time. What was Habakkuk's initial question? Where are you, God? What are you doing? Why have you left me? I thought you were righteous and good. How can you look at evil and do nothing but watch? How can you daily look at traitors and stay silent while the wicked swallow up the righteous? And the Lord responds to Habakkuk, you just wait, Habakkuk, for the appointed time. Watch in awe. Be astounded. Because there will be a time, there will be a day where I myself will idly look at traitors. There will be a day where I myself will watch a righteous man be swallowed up by the wicked. There will be a time where I myself and my son will cry, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries at the cross. And God tells Habakkuk, watch and be amazed, Habakkuk. I am going to do something that even if I told you, you will never believe. You will never believe what I am about to do for you my people, for my sons and daughters. What am I getting at? What does this all mean for us? What this means for us is in the gospel, God doesn't just give an answer to our cries. In the gospel, God doesn't just give an answer to our suffering. In the gospel, what the gospel tells us is that God gives us himself. In Christ, the answer to Habakkuk's complaint, the answer to our complaint, to our difficulties, to our pain, to our suffering, was and it is in the cross of Christ. Let me end with a quick story here. There's this professor, retired professor of philosophy from Yale University. His name is Nicholas, Vol Nicholas Wolterstroff. And he lost his son to a freak hiking accident. His son was only 25. And Nicholas Wolterstoff, he puts his thoughts and pains of confronting what he calls the never-ending death of his own son into a book called Lament for a Son. And if I can read for you some of the words that he writes, some of the questions that he has as he processes these things. He writes, how is faith to endure when you, God, allow this? If you have not abandoned us, God, if you have not abandoned me, explain yourself. But as I ask these questions, now a new and more disturbing question arise. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? And he continues to write later, he says, God, you are not only the God of the sufferers, but you are the God who himself suffers. The pain and the fallenness of humanity has entered into your own heart, and through my own tears, I see you, a suffering God. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his glory his splendor, and live. But a friend said that perhaps it means that no one could see your sorrow and live. Or maybe even that your sorrow is your splendor. 
What is he saying here? How can you and I know without a doubt that God will answer our waiting upon him in our seasons of difficulty, confusion, and pain? Because he says here, in the cross of Christ, what we see is a picture of God who cares so much that he himself would come and suffer. The same suffering that you and I suffer. And not only do we see that in the cross of Christ, but in the cross of Christ, we see a God who cares so, not only do we see a God who cares so much that he himself will come in our place, but we see a God who is able, who is sovereign, who is in control, who spoke this plan of rescue, who spoke this plan of salvation from the very beginning of time. He is in control. He sees all things. He knows what is to come, not just tomorrow, but the day after that, and the week after that, and the month after that, and the years after that. We see in the cross of, God, uh, uh, cross of Christ a God who is able to protect, who is able to deliver, who is able to save. And so in our time of difficulty, suffering, pain, confusion, doubt, anxiety, whatever, we are able to wait upon the Lord with patience and perspective, knowing full well that in the cross of Christ, God has answered us. That He is currently answering us in this very present time. And that He will continue to answer because He is faithful to us. Let me pray and close our time together. God, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the Gospel. God, that in the cross of Christ, we have a visible reminder of your love for us. And not only that, but Lord, that you are a God who is faithful to us. That you are a God who listens. That you hear our cries. And that you care so much that you would come in the form of your own son to eradicate it once and for all. God, give us the strength this week to focus harder on you. God, to put things into perspective that all the things of this world will fade away. That we would draw closer and cling harder to the cross of Christ. We love you more. Help us, or we love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.